podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing, You Were Always Someone Else. This time we're discussing the movie House, or Haosu, for Halloween inspiration. Join us on the path of suns and we may uncover a secret or two. When we cast You Were Always Someone Else, we discuss inspirations from other media for our games of Invisible Sun. As is our annual tradition, we are celebrating Halloween a little early by talking about inspiration you can find in a surreal horror film. We have bounced around from country to country, and this year finds us discussing a uh, classic Japanese horror film called House or Haosu. We will typically refer to this as House, though if you're Googling to find information about it, Haosu might be a useful way to distinguish it from the many other movies called House. Uh, this is also, uh, you can also find this as House or Haosu 1977, and you can reliably get information um, on the movie as long as you put all that together. But if you just go, uh, if you just Google House movie, uh, a lot of things are going to, going to come up. So you want to either distinguish the year or use the Japanese title uh, to more reliably find information. Yeah, we finally watched House. <laughs> we did. We've talked about it so many times, and now we've we've actually watched it. And and um, it, yeah, we we did. <laughs> Let me tell you, my expectations coming into this were vastly different than what we got. Oh yeah. man, what a weird movie. We will talk about how this is weird, um, but I will tell you, this is not a horror film in the way that The Ring or uh, Juan, which is more of a haunted house story, are, and it's it's influential on, but is not representative of uh, the last 20, 30 years of Japanese horror. Uh, this is very different in ways we'll talk about. But let's oh. provide a little background uh, on the movie itself, uh, which is makes the movie all the more strange and how it ever existed. Uh. <laughs> it uh, uh, so in the late or mid seventies, uh, the Japanese film industry was feeling pressure from uh, uh, from American movies that were being imported and basically making more money than the domestic movies. So the a lot of the film studios, including Toho, who is famous for Godzilla and is also the producer uh, production company for this movie, wanted to find some way to compete with all of these movies, particularly horror movies coming over from the U.S. And specifically following the success of Jaws, Toho decided they wanted to feature their own horror film uh, to compete for that dollar that Jaws was so successful at winning. And uh, if you think of House as the competitor to Jaws, it makes even less sense than it, does, than it did before. Because it is nothing like Jaws. No, <laughs> no, it's not. It's got some <laughs> horror beats in it. <laughs> it, it does. Um, it's much more comedy horror, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, yeah. So Toho hired a respected television uh, commercial director uh, to develop a script, and he did so based on a story his preteen daughter developed with him. And they, they developed the script, they turned it over to Toho, and Toho approved the script and said, we would like to develop this movie. That's one of the great mysteries is how it ever got approved. 
then the uh, Toho found no one wanted to direct it. <laughs> <laughs> and again, when you see the movie, oh. you'll see why it is so crazy and so unusual that I can imagine a lot of directors saying pass, like find someone else to do this. This is not, this requires such a, a unique perspective um, that you, you know, I, I, I generic director can't do this. They uh, all the time they were shopping it to other directors. This television commercial director was lobbying Toho saying, we'll do it. We'll do it. I'd love to do it. Um, and eventually when everyone else passed, they said, fine, we've greenlit the project. Um, we got to have somebody do this. So uh, they gave it to the, the, that original commercial director. It um, was released to uh, actually a good deal of success in the Japanese theater uh, market. Uh, but if, as you would imagine, uh, critics hated it. <laughs> yeah, I can see uh, that. It was very rarely aired outside of Japan for a long time. I want to say the, U the the first U.S. release, other than out of, out sort of like idiosyncratic art house showings, but the first actual release of the movie was sometime after 2000. So, you know, decades later, it eventually comes out in the US. By that time, it had built up a, a, a cult following. It was considered a cult classic. And it was in the process of becoming gathered as in the Criterion Collection, which is a prestigious uh, designation for art house and, you know, quote unquote, cinema. Yep. Uh, uh, the movie itself is also important to kind of get the context of it. The director was actually born in Hiroshima. And so uh, themes of annihilation and ties to World War II are present in the movie and sort of dominate some of the imagery uh, as the as trauma is interpreted by this director in terms of his own trauma of his his uh, birth city being destroyed in World War II. So you have new, you have references to explosions, particularly nuclear explosions and things like that coming up that are clear references to the biography of the director. Uh, last thing I want to mention in sort of background, uh, this is not the easiest movie to find. Um, I was lucky enough to catch it airing on Turner Classic Movies. They air it about once a year. So uh, if you haven't seen it by the time this podcast drops, uh, maybe next October, you'll be able to see it again. But they don't air this one very often, though they do sometimes run it on their... I believe it's Sunday night uh, or no, it's either Saturday or Sunday nights. I forgot which is which they have uh, one's a, um, a foreign and silent film series. It'll sometimes it could pop up there. Uh, and the other is sort of a, a grindhouse exploitation film series, which isn't it's TCM grindhouse. So it's not all that grindy a grindhouse and they it'll this movie might show up there, but it, it doesn't air on television very often. Um, Though Dave, I know you you ha you found it streaming. Yeah, I just rented it on Amazon. You can you can rent it there and some other places too. Yeah, so you might be able to find it for for streaming. Uh, it is available and in print for the disc, but again, it's a it's a Criterion Collection, so there's a notoriously expensive uh, DVDs and Blu-rays to get. Um, so I and I would recommend you watch it before you buy it. Uh, because it is a movie that is not for everyone's taste. I I highly recommend watching this movie. Um, are we going to jump into the overview or can we talk about like our impressions? Yes. First? Oh, go, go impressions are fine. I think. Yeah. Uh, not what I was expecting. Like I said earlier, I, I enjoyed this movie. I wouldn't uh, like you. I wouldn't recommend it to almost anybody. It's, <laughs> it's absolutely really bizarre. Um, there's a lot of weird stuff that they do initially that, you know, I found, uh, I, I think jarring is the best way to put it. Like, 
the, I don't think they had any actual backgrounds that weren't matte paintings. Like the clouds in the skies were all just matte paintings. Like, and you know, it wasn't a, a bad thing. It was just weird, which I appreciate. Um, and then also at a certain point in the movie, I'm watching it and I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, I'm just watching an anime. This is, this is an anime. The, the, the goofy humor, the over-exaggerated expressions and characters, uh, the six girls, um, it like, it, it was an anime, man. And it's an anime in the ways you would think least likely to be represented in film because like the blocking and the movement Uh of characters, which is the hardest thing to reproduce in live filmmaking. That's what they do in a lot of uh, in specific sequences. It's like that's that's anime blocking. Characters are flying (laughs) in unrealistic ways, but not even in sort of a wusha, uh, you know, a a little bit of that. But even just just crazy vectors and trajectories for characters jumping around. A little bit of wushu was there was like one shot, but all of the other flying was just like, (laughs) yeah, it was just anime flying. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is bonkers. Yeah. And especially if you think of like late seventies and this is influencing into the eighties anime. Um, it is, it, it's like that. And uh, yeah, that is not likely what you have expected. Nope. Uh, also almost all of the actors are amateur and that was a choice they'd made in, in production. Uh, I don't think it was motivated by cost. I think it was motivated because they wanted people with a blank slate that weren't going to bring traditional modes of acting to this script. And boy, did they get that. (laughs) I always have a hard time evaluating like the acting chops when it's dubs. Right. When it's dubbed, like if I guess, yeah, some of it can come through. um, But, you know, I I think it's easier for me to watch a movie that's been dubbed and just not dubbed. Um, No, it's not dubbed. I was about to ask. Yeah, yeah, the version I saw is subtitled. Yeah, subtitles. Yeah, that's that's what I meant. Um, yeah, when it's when it's subtitled, like you know, um, you know, some of the acting can be bad, and I won't really notice it as easily as if it was, you know, in you know, an American movie with American actors who are really bad. But here, even with the subtitles, you could tell how hammy some of the acting was. Yeah, but that was just kind of the whole <laughs> the whole movie the was movie. that. Yeah. Um, so are given those impressions of how bizarre this movie was. And it's why we chose it was because oh, in the music cues. (laughs) Oh man. (laughs) Gosh, the music cues were so good. I, what was that tune that just kept getting played over and over? Oh man. Uh, And then the cat would show up and there was a music cue for the cat. Yeah. Characters have their cues. Um, some of the locations have cues and the cues are highly varied. So it's almost like a soap opera soundtrack in a blender. Mm-hmm. which again, given the gonzo nature of the movie, it works. It triggers those sort of emotional responses just as it's, it's intending, which is why I think it's been picked up as a very, uh, as a kind of a classic and important film, not because it is necessarily the highest quality film, but because there's things it does that it is that are very deliberate and they accomplish mm-hmm. their goals. And so it's deliberateness is why it's remembered more so than it's sort of cinematic appeal. No one's going to confuse it for Citizen Kane. It's a it's a real weird movie to to explain because like I think it works, but I think it's dumb. Yeah, and, and, it, <laughs> and it looks like intendedly dumb. 
and and it goes out of its way early in the movie to just signal to you this is going to get dumb be ready for this and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that probably as we go along and oh, are we going to talk about the guy falling and getting a bucket stuck on his butt and then this is, and becomes a major plot point yes <laughs> uh, i i don't have that in my overview but we'll get back to that cuz i'll talk about tone right, and and, cool. hum, and tone and humor later so we've talked already 12 minutes about this movie and haven't actually told you what happens in this movie. Uh, we tend to give very light overviews and we will do so here as well. And this movie doesn't really stand up to a great detailed plot description anyway, uh, for reasons that yeah. will be obvious. So a girl named gorgeous, uh, good names learns that her widower father has a new girlfriend who's creepy. Uh, yes. And yeah, there's, 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 cultural stuff there that I am not comfortable discussing because I don't know well enough, but I think there's, there's more there than I, there's more that I'm willing to discuss and even more th- or that I'm not quite sure of. And I'm totally ignorant to it. So I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, again, I, it involves race and I don't really want to get into that without knowing more about it. It seems irresponsible. So I'm going to just ignore that for right now. You can tell me off mic uh, when you can actually be an awful person. Um, well, I, and I don't think it'll be, you know, you'll see, but anyway, I just, it's, I'm not confident enough that I won't say something accidentally awful. So I will avoid that. Um, so upset by learning that his widower father has this new girlfriend, she abandons her original plans to spend summer vacation with her father and instead takes several of her friends from school to stay with her ailing aunt, whom she has not seen in years. Uh, this is where the bucket comes in. They were originally planning to go out with one of their teachers, which is super creepy. Yes. Yeah, and it's, it's coded in the movie. It's me. creepy too. Like, okay. I, this is not a cultural projection it, in the movie. They re- reference this in, in ways that are clearly coded. Like this is a little uh, questionable, but these girls were all going to go hang out with their, their teacher on the beach. Uh-huh. But, uh, first the teacher's sister where they're going to stay, uh, is, is, uh, uh, going to have a baby and can't have them over for the summer. And right. then the teacher falls into a bucket. His rear end is stuck in a bucket mm-hmm. and it zooms around the streets for a little while in a scene that I can only describe as an outtake from the old TV show, the monkeys. Yeah. Yep. It looked like that. And it also that I have seen that scene in many animes. Yes. So it, it is it is clearly sort of physical humor. Uh, ex- it, it, and I don't just mean like he slides. He slides up and down stairs um, mm-hmm. in a bucket. It's uh, uh, early. The Beatles movies you, you mentioned as we talked about this. You know, it's it's that type of physical humor. So yeah. this the girls have to find a new plan. And Gorgeous says, well, let's go see my aunt. I've not seen her in a long time. And I think she'd love to see us. And I don't want to go with my dad for the summer anymore. So the girls all go to the small town where her um, aunt uh, lives and are going to spend the summer with her. And they start to see strange manifestations of spirits threatening threatening them, including a haunted piano and the, sc- the spooky set of haunted mattresses. <laughs> uh, creepy clock. Uh, creepy. Yeah, there's a creepy clock. Yes. Uh, several of these uh, of the girls are killed. Uh, and we start to see that Gorgeous becomes possessed by the spirit of her aunt who died since she la- since Gorgeous last saw her. Uh, possibly after accepting the request, it wasn't clear whether it was years ago or recent. And there seems to be some it, it's not entirely clear, but basically mm-hmm. the aunt has died. She was driven to despair because she was waiting for her fiance to return from World War II, and he had not yet returned. 
he probably died in World War II, but she doesn't believe it. Well, I wasn't – so I've seen this movie a few times and the first couple times I watched it, that's exactly the reading I had was that he he died in the war and she can't accept that he died in the war. There's a scene of uh, – when they talk about the history of him being in a plane that looks like it's being shot up. Yeah. So there's – so it looks like he may have died in the war, but there's – in some ways they emphasize it so much and in such an awkward way. I wonder if there's a hint that he – not that he died, he just didn't come back. I was wondering that too. Um, but yeah, I guess if I were to watch this again, I, I would keep that in mind. Yeah. And it doesn't matter so much for the plot, but I think the thematic yeah. in the thematic difference is important. Was she abandoned or did he die in war? Either yeah. way, she is driven to despair and that despair haunts her house and uh, as, as a whole. And it is really focused on her white cat named Blanche. And the white cat is a big part of the advertising and, and it's a striking image that you see in a lot of, of, of the art surrounding the movie. So Blanche is, is, is pretty important in that regard. Yeah. And there's a, there's a lot of cat blood in this movie too. (laughs) Uh, Like, yeah, gallons and gallons and (laughs) roomfuls (laughs) of cat blood. Um, That's a good, which is a good transition. Uh, So that's the basic plot. There's a little more. And I, I, that I don't really need to spoil to have this conversation. So I'll just leave it, leave it be. Uh, but you can see this is a, a basic haunted house movie. Uh, but it, it is, it, it, it does, it approaches the subject matter in some unusual ways. And I think the the first lesson we can take from the movie and its most distinguishing characteristic is the extreme tones that it combines. It has bizarre humor mixed with violence and gore. Mm. I mean, also, also sort of extreme violence and gore. So yes, you've got the monkeys style uh, physical humor or almost, and it has the sort of stop motion Benny Hill sort of thing too. Uh-huh. Um, but it has buckets and buckets of blood and a, uh, a, a, a lot of dismemberments. Yeah, I was going to say lots of severed limbs, decapitated heads, uh, all sorts of things like that. Yeah. So when the, the piano is attacking someone, it first chops off her fingers <laughs> and um, or breaks her fingers yeah. in, in a very dramatic and visual way and then starts eating her hands. And that's more upsetting. It's it's almost as if she she underreacts to her fingers all being broken. But then when they when it eats her hands, that's just too much. And she freaks out and then eats her in the in, its, in her entirety. And she floats around at times. It, it just parts of her body, like her torso and one leg and two arms are often off angles separated from each other so this notion of dismemberment is a huge part and that's that's pretty gory mm-hmm. uh <laughs> that's something that, that typically would indicate the movie is is a you know extreme violent extremely violent extreme horror uh but it is directly juxtaposed with absurdist humor yeah so the the uh the these decapitations and this dismemberments while still horrific still seem almost humorous um, I mean, the perfect a perfect example of this would be, um, you know, that that light that eats part of one of the girls, but the rest of her <laughs> keeps on going. Yes, yes. At, at one point, in fact, it's a key point in the resolution ish of the of the movie is someone who is half consumed, but the unconsumed portion of her body damages the house in a way that at least stops this manifestation. Uh, and it's great. <laughs> so you just, and again, so it's literally a flying limb 
uh, ends up resolving this particular fight. And that actually is particularly interesting for us in Invisible Sun, where bodies don't have the same coherence and meaning that they do in our world, where dismemberment can be used strategically and, and aesthetically, maybe I should say. You can choose to have your arms just float next to your body. You can choose to have just a you know a head floating above some other a clock or, or whatever as your body. So this notion of dismemberment and the discontinuity of the body represented here for humorous and horrific uh, consequences actually works really well with Invisible Sun in its aesthetic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the whole like house, you know, coming to life and uh, all of the things within it, you know, acting upon their own accord. Like it Reminds me of a lot of the uh, a few of the scenes that show up in various bits of Invisible Sun, too. Yeah, and, and the importance of ideas and the importance of perceptions. Mm -hmm. So there's one often comment on scene that doesn't seem to connect to much of anything else in the movie, uh, but it is it is classically absurdist is there's one character is is one character who comes to the is approaching the house at least and comes through the village of the house and runs into a watermelon salesperson and he just explains he does not like watermelons he likes bananas yep and that's about as simple a statement as you could make he makes it rather emphatically and then just keeps repeating i like bananas i like bananas and then disappears out of the narrative until later someone's walking through that village again and you see his car is now filled with a roughly human shaped pile of bananas <laughs> yeah it makes <laughs> don't sense. think too much about yeah. this <laughs> but again that sounds kind of the surreal certainly um, and it kind of fits with this invisible sun thing, like of the transformation of the body to represent ideas rather than representing just a physical uh, existence. His maddened um, focus on bananas manifested as his transformation into ban a pile of bananas. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and again, this is a horror movie with massive uh, uh, decapitations and uh, dismemberment. And there's a, giant pile of banana joke. Um, and this is late in the movie. This is after the, if there, there, if there had been a discrete tonal shift from comedy to horror, this is well into the horror part yep. of the movie. Um, but there, this cuts into that to return to the weird humor, uh, all throughout the movie. I found this is a lot like watching, especially the original evil dead. And I have to imagine Sam Raimi, was deeply influenced by the crazy blocking movement, camera work, mm -hmm. and the like that you see here for uh, for Evil Dead. Because Evil Dead's famous for cartoonish violence. It's famous for um, strange camera movements and, and point of view shots that track in different places. You see a lot of that technique in-house. I think uh, Evil Dead 2 probably uh, feels a bit more similar to House than the first one. Yeah, that's probably right. Especially when we, we like it, in the climax, when we have a room filled with blood. Yeah, it's the room filled with blood. But then, like you said, the blocking and the camera moves. I think Evil Dead Two has a lot more of that really uh, over the top, you know, camera work. Yeah, he had more license with Evil yeah. Dead Two to <laughs> to do that sort Which of. Which makes stuff. me want to watch Evil Dead Two again because yeah, I I think that actually does have a lot in common with House Two or with House. Yeah, honestly, I think if someone hadn't seen Evil Dead 2, uh, watching this movie would be harder. <laughs> it would be less interesting. If you hadn't seen where this sort of bizarre humor mm -hmm. goes, 
in the future in horror. Uh, this would just seem weird for weird sake. Uh, but if you situate it in the history that leads to things like Evil Dead, that leads to things like anime, it is much more interesting than if you tried to watch it for its own merits. Yeah, definitely. Its place in history does does make it a little more fun to watch. So word of warning, if you're not interested in its place in history, you might want to check out one of our previous movies <laughs> <laughs> that we talked about for Halloween. Um, but this 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 one appreciation really turns on that uh, being situated in, in history. Another uh, element of the movie that I think works well with Invisible Sun, and it seems really hokey, but it's also something we do in Invisible Sun a lot, is that it plays with archetypes. So I mentioned that the main character is named Mm -hmm. Gorgeous. Um, All of the schoolgirls have these sort of placeholder names that reference them as archetypes rather than as people. And we see this a lot in Invisible Sun. So to give you kind of a quick review... Obviously, this is gorgeous, and you might guess she's pretty, and she's defined by that. They, they joke at times about how she's always putting on makeup and she, things like that. There's fantasy, which is the uh, girl who's they, they never believe. They always think she's making things up. There's prof, who's the smart one with glasses, and that's pretty much the depth of her character, uh, though admirably, she survives longer than a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> there is kung fu. Kung fu is the best. Does kung fu. Yeah, she has. She's the mo- most memorable of the of these characters. There is Mac, the voracious eater, and I don't know if this is a reference to Big Mac. Maybe uh, I don't know, man. But it's it's. It, I don't know exactly where Mac comes from. But that so that's a guess. Uh, when was the Big Mac? Uh, there's introduced? Melody. Wasn't that an '80s sandwich? I think it was, but I wonder if it, it is itself referring to sort of a. A historic tradition of that name or something. I don't, I don't know. And it could, and McDonald's certainly was around in the yep. late seventies. Uh, Melody is the musician and sweet is the least mature and sort of the most innocent of the bunch. So they, they, they aren't named for with traditional first names or surnames or anything. They're named after their personality characteristics. And it reminds me of how a lot of the the major characters in Invisible Sun are like, you know, the the enemy of reason mm. as opposed to, you know, you know, Bob or whatever. Uh, they, just, they, they are referring you know, these characters are referring to themselves as archetypes in Invisible Sun. Well, that's also how this sort of this movie plays with characters is they don't stand. For, they're not people they're, they, they're from the very beginning. There's it's signaled. These are not individuals. These are archetypes that we're playing with. So don't get caught up in their personal histories, though. That's obviously important in a haunted house movie. Yep. For the most part, they are just representing these archetypes. The last lesson I, I think we can bring, um, and it may be the easiest to bring into Invisible Sun, is how the movie takes a shift towards the very end, not necessarily in tone, but in degree, where the house itself that has been you know, the subject of uh, all of these manifestations and has, has killed various schoolgirls, um, it starts to break down. And, and it's like almost like the entirety of the setting begins to disintegrate. And the emotional response to that and is is interesting because you don't expect to have an emotional response to this movie that's most that's so absurd humor and crazy sort of gore and sp- you know spurting blood everywhere. But the disintegration of the house, I think, really actually does have an impact. 
it, it does shift things quite a bit. Like the whole geography changes and it, it feels like a totally different location once it really starts coming apart. It feels like you're no longer in the world yeah. anymore that you were in this liminal place in the house for most of the movie. But in the, in towards the end, the house begins to just sort of disintegrate and it's not, it doesn't disintegrate leaving you in the world. It disintegrates leaving you in this weird space where there are no rules and there is only the horrific um, despair and pain felt by uh, the, the ghost. Yeah. And I think that is that can be an inspirational scene in particular of how you can use setting and the transformation of a the setting of a particular encounter to emphasize how um, for your characters, the whole world is changing or the whole world is disintegrating because where they are is disintegrating. Uh, it, it is somewhat like the expressionism we've talked about in some previous movies like Caligari, where the setting represents the emotional mood of the mm -hmm. characters. And that's a great technique for role playing where you just try to figure out what's the emotional tone for the scene and how do I reflect that in the physical surroundings of the characters? Well, this is an extreme example where the you know reason is disintegrating and the ghost is succumbing to all of this despair and the hunger um, that has been motivating this ghost. And, and the, so the whole house is in some ways just falling apart and it's represented in literally the house mm. falling apart, flooding with blood and everything is, is just, is there being, it's almost like being pulled into an entire, entirely separate world where those emotions are its laws of physics. And, and for invisible sun, I think that's, that's a useful way of thinking about encounters, especially sort of climactic encounters. What is the emotional beat that you're going for? How does that define the physical surroundings? And how can they define them in such an extreme manner that it seems that the emotion defines the limits and the rules of that space, as opposed to our traditional senses of physics and geography and the like? Because they just don't matter in Invisible Sun, and they certainly don't matter in House. Uh, I think that's a pretty good note to wrap it up on. Yeah. Again, um, this is House from 1977. This is not the 80s. American horror movie house. Um, there are other movies called house, but this is specifically the Japanese 1977 movie. Um, it is interesting, but I think we haven't spoiled too much and, uh, but it's useful to know what you're getting into. You're getting into a bizarre combination of physical humor and over the top physical violence in terms of dismemberment and things like that. So you kind of watch for those, those triggers, but it is treated humorously really until the very, very end until finally like, Oh wait, this is real pain. And then you have a little bit of that emotional trigger um, for the, how this world is collapsing around this uh, representation of despair. Um, and, but I think there are just little techniques we can draw from that for a game that is intended to be surreal, to have these elements of expressionism where ideas and emotions shape the world uh, unbound by our illusions of physics and other other elements. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from Drive Through RPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. 
You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, that's at A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. So please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes uh, or whichever uh, podcast app you are using. Uh, it really helps us out. Uh, we also like seeing ratings and reviews, whether they're good or bad. Uh, or else just tell a friend about the show. That's another great way to get the word out and ha help people find us.